And that's why I think that this civil war discourse can actually be really dangerous for liberals, because in a perverse way it presents a situation which actually seems much easier to solve than the real ones that they face. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Well, with the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection just having passed and no sign that America's wounds are healing, there's been a lot of talk recently in the media about the idea that the United States might be heading for a new civil war. Barbara Walter, who's a respected expert who advises the CIA on civil wars overseas, recently published a book in which she claims that the US is now exhibiting all of the warning signs of countries that she's seen descend into internal conflict in the past. Places like Rwanda, like Northern Ireland, and like Bosnia. And she says that the conditions that she sees in America today remind her of these conflicts. She's not alone in making this judgment either. So last month, three retired generals wrote an article in the Washington Post in which they warned about the possibility of what they called lethal chaos inside the American military, and this leads to a civil war if the 2024 election is disputed. We've also heard this type of rhetoric and these kinds of warnings coming from politicians as well. Those politicians saying things like this include Donald Trump, who is the figure who most people consider likely to fan the flames of an emerging conflict. He himself has repeatedly warned of the possibility of another civil war in America, and he often seems like he's trying to start one. So, how seriously should we take this? Is this just the latest product of the media's fevered imagination, or does it point to some real risks that are facing America in the future? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about in today's episode of America Explained. Thanks for tuning in, and if you enjoy the show, please consider telling a friend about it, or subscribing to the free America Explained newsletter using the link that you can find in the show notes for this episode. So, The idea that America might descend into civil war does seem on the face of it rather ridiculous. When you hear the term civil war, you probably imagine something like the previous American civil war that was fought in the 1860s. In that war, roughly half of the country seceded from the other half, established a new capital, a new government, you know, a completely kind of separate new America and then put armies into the field to go and fight the federal government in Washington. And civil wars like this mean clear lines on a map, rival governments and armies kind of marching around and beating the hell out of each other until one of them wins. Now, could something like this happen in America today? Could Donald Trump declare Mar-a-Lago the capital of the magnated states of America and then send rebel armies marching towards Washington? Well, you've got to admit that this sounds pretty unlikely. I think there's a few reasons why that's the case. You know, and even just to, to kind of take this idea seriously or as seriously as it deserves for a second, you know, firstly, the geography of America today doesn't map onto political divisions in the way that it used to. The American Civil War was about slavery, which was an issue that united a group of states who were all physically next to one another and who shared similar social and political and economic dynamics. Whites ruled those states and they wanted to perpetuate slavery over black people who didn't have any political power in those states and any say in in, in what happened. And so although there were also various different opinions about slavery within the Union, there was also a broad consensus about putting down this rebellion once the South started it, and and only over the course of of the Civil War did that gradually 
evolve towards emancipation of the slaves. But at the beginning of the Civil War, there was a broad consensus that, that the Union needed to be kept together. So you had the South who wanted to secede and keep slavery. Then you had the North, the Union, who didn't want the South to secede and, and ultimately decided that slavery needed to be abolished. So you had these two distinct entities that were geographically you know, consolidated. The Southern states were all in one place and the, the Union states were all in another place. And they could fight, fight each other. Now, America's political divisions today are profoundly and worryingly deep. I, you know, arguably not as deep as they were in the 1860s, but, but still a real problem that America has with political division. But they just don't map onto geography in the same way. There are red states and there are blue states, but those states typically contain very deep divisions, usually between liberal urban centers and conservative rural hinterlands. So the biggest predictors of how someone will vote in the United States today aren't geographical location, whether they were, you know, for instance, whether they live in the Midwest or the North or the Northwest or the South, but race and education. Those are the two biggest dividing lines in American politics today. And because every state contains a big mixture of different racial groups and, and different levels of education among its population, this means that actually the whole country is a patchwork of different political allegiances. So even blue states like California and New York have rural conservative areas, but then even a state like Mississippi, which we think of as you know the deepest of the deep south, 40% of the population of Mississippi voted for Joe Biden. So it's not like 100% of the population of Mississippi is united around the same political ideology. And that means that, you know, a civil war in America today is just not going to look the same. Another reason that a civil war on the old pattern seems impossible to imagine is that military power has really changed a lot since the middle of the 19th century. Military power in the 1860s was basically about rifles, artillery pieces, and railroads. Things that existed on both sides of the conflict, you know, all could be built easily by both sides. The US Army wasn't that big when the Civil War broke out either, but today the US military is this massive behemoth which uses sophisticated technology that's taken decades and decades and, and trillions of dollars to develop. So Donald Trump's magnated States of America is not going to have stealth bombers, it's not going to have aircraft carriers, it's not going to have fleets of Black Hawk helicopters and marines to jump out of them, it's not also going to have things like the CIA or the surveillance apparatus of the National Security Agency, and it would be completely incapable of putting a force into the field that could stand up to the US military. You know, if, if, if the magnated States of America lines up militia like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers on one side of the battlefield, and then the US Marines line up on the other side of the battlefield, there's only one way that that battle is going to go. And I guess an exception to this might be if a sizable portion of the US military went MAGA and defected to the side of the rebels. But while the military does have a problem with individual far-right service members, with people in the ranks, individuals who have far-right and extremist ideologies, there's little reason to believe that they dominate any particular part of the military. So it's not like in the event of a civil war, the 1st Armored Division, for instance, which is the US, one of the US Army's premier tank divisions, is going to go and defect to the rebels because it turns out that everyone in the 1st Armored Division is a believer in QAnon, for instance, or something like that. That's just not the type of divisions that exists in America's military today. So 
If a repeat of the last civil war from the 1860s seems so ludicrous and so improbable, what exactly are people talking about? Well, just to take Barbara Walters' book, which is a really interesting book, it's called How Civil Wars Start. I would definitely recommend reading it. You know, I'm going to disagree with it throughout this episode, but I think it sparks a lot of interesting thoughts and a lot of interesting conversations. What Barbara Walter is warning about is, is a different type of civil war, a different type of conflict. And what people basically foresee, what Barbara Walter basically foresees, is a very decentralized process, a very decentralized conflict that affects different parts of the countries very, very differently, and probably doesn't even have any individual overall leader of the rebellion or even a set of agreed-upon goals by all of the various dozens or hundreds of groups that they foresee being involved in the violence of this civil war. What they foresee is more of a breakdown of war and order combined with armed uprisings on a national scale, but actually very local in character everywhere that it's occurring. So after the break, I'm going to dive into this idea, explain a little bit more what they have in mind, and also explain why I think that this too is not a particularly smart way of thinking about America's immediate future. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So how might a new decentralized American civil war begin? In her book, How Civil Wars Start, Barbara Walter imagines that it's 2028. President-elect Kamala Harris is about to give a speech about her intention to ban assault weapons. But as she's doing so, a massive nationwide terrorist campaign of bombings and shootings breaks out, killing prominent politicians, judges, business people, and private citizens. Police and security forces are overwhelmed and cities descend into anarchy as looting begins. No one knows who's responsible for the violence and social media disinformation and misinformation are rampant. This fuels violence between different groups of citizens who, who are looking for someone to blame and an excuse to take out their frustrations. In fact, the parties responsible are a loose network of far-right and associated militias, groups like the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, and the Oath Keepers, whose leader was just indicted, and I'm talking in the real world right now, in 2022, the leader of the Oath Keepers was just indicted for seditious conspiracy for his role in the January 6th insurrection. Walter imagines groups like this playing a big role in America's descent into violence in the future. As the country kind of tumbles down this hill and, and, and goes down into violence in Walter's story, these militias begin a campaign of violence against citizens that they consider undesirable. Prominent liberals, African-American civil servants, and in a, a kind of recent twist that she put in there, even specialists in vaccination, experts of immunology, scientists that they don't like. This vision of civil war is not unique to Walters, it's one shared by others. So for instance, there was a really good podcast that I enjoyed listening to a few years ago called It Could Happen Here. Really recommend that as a deeper exploration of, of what a conflict like this might look like. So it isn't unique to Walters, this idea, and that's why I think it's worth 
worth talking about, not just in the context of her book, but just as kind of a broader idea of, of what a second American Civil War might look like. And this is a vision that's not primarily about armed groups, certainly not about uniformed armies fighting against the state, against the government. But instead, it's about different armed groups of citizens fighting one another and inflicting violence also on civilians, on those without weapons, non-combatants in the conflict. And the basic idea goes that if kind of violence between different armed groups of Americans became widespread enough, then security forces would get stretched very thin and be unable to maintain control of the central government across America's territory, which is huge. You know, America's a continental-sized empire of 10 million square kilometers. And if there was enough violence, if there were enough militias attacking one another, attacking civilians that they didn't like, the idea is that basically the, the power of the American state would become stretched so thin that they would not be able to maintain law and order across the whole territory. And that would mean that increasingly security provision, provision of governance, just control of territory would pass into the control of various armed groups. So in the cities, we might see things like the establishment of the self-declared autonomous, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which we saw in Seattle in summer 2020. Elsewhere, outside of the cities, but also rubbing up against them in violent ways, militias inspired by Christian fundamentalism or white nationalism or sovereign citizen ideology might set up their own zones of control and governance. And as we've seen in so many civil wars in recent years, when armed groups like this are formed by civilians, it inevitably leads to violence against civilians as different groups vie for control of territory and resources. And in extreme cases, in, in many cases abroad, this kind of pattern has led to ethnic cleansing and genocide. As a possible model for what a new American Civil War might look like, I think this one definitely has a lot of advantages over simply reimagining the last American Civil War. America is a country with a remarkably decentralized capacity for violence. There's something like 400 million firearms in private hands in America, and there are already hundreds of militias of various ideological persuasions throughout the country. A civil war like this wouldn't be between the government and one well-defined rebel army, but rather it would be a multi-sided conflict which featured the government and hundreds of different armed groups, all with different goals and ideologies and shifting allegiances, fighting one another as well as fighting against the government. And as this kind of cauldron of violence intensified, the idea is that also local and state police forces, National Guard units, even isolated units of federal forces, which are all flush with modern military equipment, you know, in the case of, those, of the police forces, stuff that's been decommissioned by the Pentagon and then funneled to local police departments. And they're not necessarily going to take the side of the federal government. Their allegiance might float freely as well. We saw in the chaotic summer after the murder of George Floyd in 2020, how local police forces sometimes actually worked together and sided with far-right militia to put down racial justice protests. 
And we might definitely see the same sorts of allegiances emerge in the new American Civil War. And with all of this going on, you know, for all of the military strength of the federal government, we've seen how in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the federal government, the, the US military has often struggled to put down this kind of decentralized, geographically widespread insurgency. To put down a, a movement that's based in the, the, the support of the population, doesn't have any leader who you can just call up on the phone and negotiate with, is composed of people who aren't lining up on a field, you know, and, and fighting you, you know, charging you down a hill um, in a uniform, but instead are melded and blended with the population, are often indistinguishable from civilians, are perhaps only exerting control at night, whereas in the daytime they don't seem to be visible, they're just not there, they disappear, they, they go back to their civilian occupations. It's very, very difficult to put down this kind of insurgency. And actually the militia movement does contain many veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan who learned from the Taliban and other groups how best to wage an insurgency. And we, don't, we would expect that these people to be at the forefront of this new insurgency in the next American Civil War. There's also this kind of psychological and political aspect to all of this. So anyone who watches American politics right now knows that polarization has become insanely high and that it's often accompanied on the right by violent rhetoric and dehumanization of the political opposition. Extremist media has played a role in sparking war and ethnic cleansing all over the world, from Rwanda to the former Yugoslavia to recent events in Myanmar. And in America, there is actually already a large, very extremist right-wing media complex featuring popular figures like Tucker Carlson who espouse white supremacist tropes. Tucker Carlson's a big fan of espousing what's called the Great Replacement Theory, which is a conspiracy theory that claims that liberal elites want to commit genocide against white people and replace them with immigrants from the global south. This kind of rhetoric is, is really already very present in American society to an extent that I think we, we don't think about enough how dangerous and potentially deadly this kind of rhetoric is. Even some Republican politicians, like re representatives like Madison Cawthorn, Marjorie Taylor Greene, have repeatedly endorsed the idea of violence against liberals and democratic politicians in the federal government. Tens of millions of Americans now live in a, in a media bubble that's inundated with this sort of violent messaging. And they're often, they're, they've been primed to believe that their own way of life faces extinction if they don't strike fast. Now, the end point of a war like this isn't going to be a uniformed army of rebels marching into Washington, D.C., or the last rebel army getting mowed down on a field in Virginia. Once they begin, these this kind of decentralized conflict has momentum all of its own and it's very, very hard to stop. Federal security forces might be huge, they're certainly huge enough to defeat any opponent in open battle, which is why no opponent is likely to try to fight them that way. But they can't stamp out dozens of different insurgencies across America's cities and mountains and bayous and deserts and hills and forests at least not without the application of a, of a level of violence which would be impossible domestically. So a second American civil war fought along these lines could drag on for a really long time as the government fought and negotiated with these different groups. 
Federal authority would retreat from some parts of the country out of necessity, probably, as resources were needed to, to fight elsewhere. And in some parts of the country, governance might pass to armed groups, actually, you know, militias. Uh, or self-defense associations in the cities might actually begin to be be the main forces of law and order in certain parts of the country, at least for some time. And probably, eventually, there would need to be a series of negotiated settlements between the federal authorities and the groups who, who were actually were in control on the ground in these regions. It would be a really, really ugly thing. A war of brother against brother could go on for a long time, and it could really tear the country apart, perhaps for good. So that's the vision of civil war that's put forward by Barbara Walter and, and other people who are talking about American civil war right now. How likely is this, though? Is, is it actually more likely than the first one? Well, I'm going to get to that after the break and tell you what I think. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. So, to put my cards on the table, I don't think that this vision of an American Civil War is very likely either. And even worse, I actually think that this discourse and and paying attention to this vision is a real distraction from the main problems which do face the country right now. So just to deal with these in turn, the reason I don't think this vision is very likely is because for all of the heated rhetoric and polarization that we see in America right now, and for all of the ways that violence does permeate American life, I just don't think that we yet see the emergence of anything like a set of armed groups who would be capable of plunging the country into this kind of of civil war. It is true that America as a society is just very violent. It's much more violent than most, well, all developed countries. And there is also a very disturbing amount of political violence in America as well. Violence that's um, motivated by right wing and and less often, but but this also happens left wing ideology. And it's easy to look at this level of terrorism and violence in America and extrapolate out to something much, 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 much greater. But I really don't think that we actually see the existence of a network of groups who are this committed to the idea of an insurgency against the government or violence against their fellow civilians. So in Barbara Walters' book, she begins with this kind of coordinated nationwide terrorist attack, which I discussed in the last segment. This seems to me really just a a lurid fantasy more than anything that's likely to happen. And even if coordinated groups of terrorists did start to emerge, over a few decades of the war on terror, the FBI has got really, really good at at finding these groups, penetrating them, and breaking them up. You just have to look at something like, and this is an example that Walter uses in her book, is that in October 2020, there was a plot to kidnap and murder the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, by a militia group called the Wolverine Watchmen who were upset essentially about COVID lockdowns, although they also subscribed to to far-right and white nationalist ideology. So this this plot was was really bad. It's the kind of thing that Walter was talking about. It was a group of ideologically committed militia members looking to murder a prominent Democratic politician. 
But the other thing that was notable about this case was that by the time these people were arrested, the FBI had a total of 12 informants actually on the inside of this port, which was almost as many informants as there are people who are now, now actually standing trial on this port. And this follows actually a similar pattern that we've seen in um, federal government cases against Islamist terrorists over the last couple of decades as well that so often these plots are very, very amateurish. They're actually very, very minor in the sense that they are the work of cranks or people who really are just trying to do something that they don't actually really have the capability to do. They're way over their heads. And then because they're bumbling around, they come to the attention of the federal authorities. They end up with informants inside their organization. Often it's the informants who will actually sell them fake weapons or fake explosive materials, which the group will then go and use to blow something up. And then as soon as they, you know, they kind of put, pull the trigger on this fake bomb and it doesn't blow up, then suddenly the FBI swoop in and say, FBI, and arrest them. Off they go to trial. And really the whole thing, you know, it, it's perhaps necessary to get people who have dangerous ideas off the streets, but it doesn't actually mean that these people were capable of carrying out this plot on their own. And we see, I think, something similar happening in, in, in this case in Michigan as well. And so, so just to say, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that appalling acts of right-wing violence, and even, of course, you know, January 6th happened, right? The insurrection happened. I'm not saying that things like this don't happen in America and that they won't happen in the future and that that isn't a very serious problem. But what I am saying is that it seems at the moment unimaginable to me that this, this kind of activity would reach the sort of sophistication and pervasiveness that it's going to threaten the control of the American state. All sorts of nasty and crankish people join groups like the Oath Keepers and like the Proud Boys, and they want to do horrible things, you know, but they don't usually have the amount of sophistication and intelligence and resources that they need to do that, and there aren't actually that many of them. So if you look at, according to the recent indictment of Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes, who, like I mentioned earlier, was indicted for involvement in the January 6th insurrection, after January 6th was over and the, the members of the Oath Keepers kind of dispersed and went back around the country, one member of the group texted another to say, after this, it's civil war. We're now in civil war 2.0. But not only is this individual now facing life in federal prison because his, you know, he was, his communications were been read by the FBI, but there's actually very, very few other people who give the indication that they're willing to give everything that they have to wage total war on the American state. America remains a remarkably affluent free country in which it's going to be very, very hard to coax people down this path of violent resistance. So again, I'm not saying that right-wing violence isn't a problem. I'm just not sure that a network like this exists or will exist anytime soon. This is really why I find a lot of this discourse about civil war to be a distraction from what actually are the most urgent problems facing America. In a way, it reminds me a little bit of the sort of threat inflation and the chasing of ghosts that we've seen during the war on terror. When this real but relatively minor threat of Islamic extremism got blown out of proportion into an ex existential civilizational challenge for America. And if you go down this path of, of exaggerating the threat here, 
then you end up in a really bad place in terms of civil liberties and also of increasing polarization in society. There's a risk that you actually have a vision about something like a new civil war, and when you start acting like it's true, you can actually push the country further and further down that path. So I'm absolutely in favor of the federal government doing a lot more to clamp down on and stop right-wing violence, but let's not pretend that these guys in the Proud Boys or some group calling itself the Wolverine Warriors are actually an existential threat to America. But I think there is a way that this whole story intersects with what I think are the gravest challenges facing America today, but it can also be a distraction from them. So the ball that we really need to keep our eye on right now is the threat that the Republican Party poses to American democracy. The way that it's going to use America's institutions like the Supreme Court and the Senate and the Electoral College to potentially push the country more and more into the establishment of a kind of soft authoritarianism, a kind of one-party state, like something that we see in Hungary today, for instance. This immediate threat to democracy is much more pressing, and you can even see this if you consider, for instance, the January 6th insurrection. What made that day terrifying was not because this group of militia guys and MAGA enthusiasts were actually going to take over the government, but because they were just one piece of a much, much larger plan by the Republican Party to steal the election and keep Donald Trump in office. It turned out that that plan didn't work, which really had nothing to do with, with the militias and the protest and the insurrection one way or another. So the appalling chaos and violence of that day is the most immediate image that we have of it. But it was that larger plan, not the chaos, that was really most dangerous. And that's why I think that this civil war discourse can actually be really dangerous for liberals, because in a perverse way it presents a situation which actually seems much easier to solve than the real ones that they face. You know, if the real problem was just a bunch of militia guys, then you can use legal means and coercive means, you can use wiretapping and warrants and FBI and whatever to break them up and put those guys in prison. That would be a relatively easy thing to do compared to the problem that actually faces Democrats. You know, this civil war discourse gives you the idea that, that all you need is some court cases and some FBI raids, and then this problem's going to be over. And it reminds me a little bit of... This kind of legalism which attached itself to Robert Mueller's investigation in the early Trump years, when it was really easy for liberals just to believe that there were only always one indictment away from justice finally being done and Trump vanquished for good. But actually things weren't that easy and they're not that easy today either. The task of building a winning political coalition which can keep the Republicans out of power and preserve American democracy is much, much harder than waiting for spies and prosecutors to win these battles for you. That's the task that really faces anyone who cares about the future of America, and it's a really, really difficult one. That's all for this episode of America Explained. I hope you enjoyed it. Please tell a friend and consider subscribing to our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. Look forward to catching you next time. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs>